0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Nissan Bolivinaka, and good morning. I'm your host, Aggie Topo, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We would like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Boonaurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. What can we expect on the show today? Well, Fiji government denies University of the South Pacific students to march in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
2: I implore you to understand that our decision isn't a stand against your cause, but a plea for safety, unity and understanding, and most importantly, peace.
1: Fisheries leaders from across the Pacific glean from learnings in Iceland.
2: Uh, there were several strategic decisions made to uh, address uh, overfishing and put better management in place.
1: And Pacific Games in Solomon Islands highlight the ever-growing urban transformation of the island nation. We'll get into more of these stories in the show, but thanks again for tuning in. I'm Eggy Dubow, and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though, Pacific Island nations have long been used by criminal organisations as a transshipment point to smuggle illicit drugs. But in Samoa, an increase in arrests involving methamphetamine suggests the country has also become a market for them as well. Police and others are concerned about the availability and spread of the highly addictive drug. The ABC's Samoa reporter Adele Fruin filed this report from the capital, Apia.
3: For years... Cannabis has long been the most used drug in Samoa. Other illicit drugs were either too expensive or too hard to import into the island nation. But recently, police are noticing a change, and it comes in the form of methamphetamine.
4: I started that always oh, on my birthday when I was turning 17, I think. Yeah, and there was one of my other friends, he's much older than and me by then, he had a business and he had access to it.
3: That's Charles. It's not his real name. He's a former addict who spoke to the ABC on the condition we wouldn't reveal his identity.
4: It was just like a uh, birthday present for me one week to have a taste of it. And I took it, uh, I told him, I can't feel anything. I don't feel anything. I just, I feel normal." And he said, i just wait, um, the thing will have its effects on your shoulder. It makes you feel invincible, and you know, it like a superhero.
3: He says buying meth in Samoa has never been easier, with more and more young people addicted.
4: The drug has been excess, especially the young ones. And the worst are the ones that are not worth
3: and according to Charles, even school children are now users. Some people are taking it just to be like
4: a cool guy. The school gets us have access to it now.
3: Deputy Police Commissioner Papa Ali'i Mona Lisa Tia says that the drug problem in Samoa has become more of an issue after the borders opened up post-COVID.
5: Based on the, the current vectors and the current cases, um, current
1: um, grief that's been done, we can say that it's getting to a point that uh, it's becoming a continent
3: Babali said police credit members of the public coming forward with information about people involved in drug-related activities leading to arrests.
6: We voted to a close down.
1: Um, there was hardly any work undertaken in relation to all 12 some of the factors that we're seeing is because borders have now opened up. People are, in and out of are
5: coming in and out of farm law. Both are coming in and nervous now. So,
3: um, of course, we are seeing the increase. As well as keeping law enforcement busy, it is causing major social issues. Sa'i Livao said Neil leads the Salvation Army's addiction services team.
7: There's always issues with people um, abusing alcohol. Uh, Then you have cannabis, which is an existing problem. (laughs) And then now we have uh, a methamphetamine, a growing problem.
3: He says the impact has been severe.
7: A lot of our communities here, uh, you know, they're struggling with the other people and the drug use. The behaviours that they are now uh, showing are out of uh, control. Uh, they're not um, at school. They're not. They're under, uh, They're unemployed. All they're doing is uh, they're finding out places where they could have access to alcohol and drugs.
3: Wao is also a clinical supervisor. He says clients tell him myth is readily available on the streets in Samoa.
7: Not as much as cannabis, but it's getting there. The government should be worried. The elders and the and everybody should be worried, because, you know, speaking from experience, of uh, working in New Zealand uh, for years, you wouldn't want to wish the consequences uh, the impact of, of this truck on anybody.
3: Charles was using for 30 years, and he knows the impact all too well.
4: It makes you want to take it more and more and more. You will never say, I've heard enough. I was starting to look for it and starting to take it deep. That was how it all started. It was just like tasting beer or tasting marijuana.
3: The father of four decided to make a new change in his life, but it took the police to get involved.
4: When the police raided my room, they really hit me, especially my daughter was at home when the police came. That was my turning point. Thank God for doing this to me rather than I get shot or I shoot someone.
3: Charles has been clean for close to a year now and he has one piece of advice for the younger generation in Samoa and across the Pacific.
1: Don't
4: ever think of trying it. Don't ever think of trying it.
1: And that report from our Samoan reporter Adele Froon. Well, Fiji's Prime Minister Sitivini Rambuka has defended his government's decision not to endorse a UN resolution calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, saying he's entitled to make a unilateral call. The decision attracted condemnation from some religious and civil society groups in Fiji and disagreement from Mr Rambuka's coalition partner, the National Federation Party, which supports a ceasefire. But Mr Rambuka shrugged off the criticism and says the coalition, remains united despite a difference of opinions on the issue
5: there are times when uh, the prime minister will have to make unilateral uh, decisions and uh, be able to stand up for those decisions when the uh, other parties to the coalition come together Uh, and that is that has always been the case since december of last year where i am allowed and that's according to their vote of confidence in me uh, to make that and uh, it's within the parties. And if the, uh, the members of parliament are not happy with the stance that the prime minister takes, and uh, believe it is a uh, wrong uh, stance from what the party would stand for, then they go back and the party, would probably express reservations, or uh, yeah, reservations on the statement that the prime minister has made, and they're free to do that. And we uh, move on from there, we taking into consideration the reservations expressed by the party. The members of parliament stand together. We are united under the current leadership uh, with me as prime minister and the three deputy prime ministers. And we would consult now that we have had reservations expressed by one of the coalition partners. We will go and and deal with it in-house.
1: Meanwhile, the government has denied a request by students at the University of the South Pacific to march in the capital Suva in solidarity with the Palestinian people. The Home Affairs Minister and National Federation Party MP, Pio Tekonduan says the planned march was not safe.
2: The police have made their assessment looking at risks, considering the potential for communal discord and have decided to deny the the application. This decision was made by the police. However, as Minister for Home Affairs, it is my duty to explain to the people the rationale of this decision. Granting this match means we would also be setting a precedent. If we allow this procession, we must, in fairness, grant permission to pro-Israeli group. Now, this could lead to multiple matches, each with its own set of challenges potentially escalating tensions within our community. While I understand and respect your rights to voice your concerns and stand in solidarity, but it is important that we remain united as a nation while also acknowledging the suffering faced by those in Israel and in Palestine. I implore you to understand that our decision isn't a stand against your cause, but a plea for safety unity and understanding, and most importantly, peace.
1: And that's Fiji's Home Affairs Minister, Piyotikunduaduadhyam. Our fisheries leaders from across the Pacific are in Iceland with the hopes of learning valuable lessons from the country's fisheries management. The visit, being funded by the Icelandic government and World Bank, is an attempt to share how Iceland transitioned from being dependent on development funding to a country with a thriving local fishing
6: industry. Mackenzie Smith has the story. It might seem like an unlikely match, but Iceland and nine Pacific Island countries have found common ground when it comes to fisheries. Several officials from the Pacific have traded the tropics for Iceland's frosty coasts as they tour local fisheries and meet with industry leaders. It's been a shock for Christopher Arthur, Executive Officer at Vanuatu's Ministry of Agriculture, Livestock, Forestry, Fisheries and Biosecurity.
8: Totally different from Pacific. Um, It's cold. It's the first time for me to come to a place like this where you're staying at uh, below 10 degrees and now we're at the northern part of the island. It's even colder. (laughs) So it's like
6: you, from minus two to minus four. Around 70% of Iceland's commercial fish stocks are processed locally for export, a figure officials say has been critical in making the country financially independent. But it wasn't always like this. Around 40 years ago, Iceland's fisheries industry was in a similar state to many Pacific nations now, with much of its stock being fished by offshore fishing companies. That. That left Iceland dependent on foreign development aid. It's a story well known to Thor Asgesen, director of Iceland's Grow Fisheries Training Programme and who has been working with the Pacific Fisheries Delegates.
2: At that time, uh, we just realised uh, the importance of our fisheries and uh, there were several strategic decisions made to, uh, to address uh, overfishing and, and, and put uh, better management in place. And long story short, today we are one of the, the more prosperous countries in Europe. And this was done through through fisheries.
6: Now, as Gesson says, there are important lessons to be shared with Pacific nations.
2: There are pathways that uh, the, the Pacific islanders could explore in order to uh, maximise the value of the resources. One of them is to... Uh, to look more into the better utilization of the raw material that is being harvested. And uh, and that is what we have been
5: doing in Iceland.
6: There have already been important takeaways from Iceland's fisheries management for delegates like Christopher Arthur. They have good uh, uh,
8: institutions like the Fisheries Institute, for example, with uh, research vessels and uh, the high-tech equipment that they use to track the uh, biology of uh, the main fishery that uh, they are targeting or harvesting. And then those uh, informations plus those that comes from the industry uh, via fishes and fishing boats and then through to the processing facilities that are translated into policy.
6: Mr Arthur says while introducing strict caps on fishing like Iceland has done can upset small-scale fishers, ultimately it's in the best interests of nations to take a long-term view for fisheries management. Education is another area where he thinks Pacific nations can learn from Iceland's story.
8: We went to a small uh, fish uh, fishing training, like for, to, to train fishers in uh, how to work on ships, engine, manning engines, and uh, it's a lot more of a technological uh, college and school. Uh, and they're training people from Not only Iceland, but other areas that, uh, and they're doing
6: virtual learning too. I I think this is something that is an option for us too. He says with increasing populations across the Pacific putting strain on coastal fisheries, countries will need to move to locally process and manage offshore fisheries like tuna.
8: It will always be best for us to start making use of what we have now. And um, also understanding the fact that um, us in the Pacific, uh, despite that we have these resources at hand, uh, we still face a lot of issues.
6: Arthur says sustainable fisheries could also help address the prevalence of non-communicable diseases in the Pacific by incorporating more fish into people's diets.
1: And that is Mackenzie Smith with that report. Hey, don't go anywhere because next we'll have our news rap with producer Talia Auletia. Uh, yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Agi Bowen, and of course this time we get to head around the region uh, and see what is happening with our news rep provided by producer Talia Aulitea. How you doing? Good morning, Aggie. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. We head to PNG though. They look like they've got outstanding rental fees uh, that need to be paid in New York. Yeah, the Post Courier is reporting
9: that PNG is scrambling to avoid a lawsuit over an outstanding rental debt. Now Treasurer Ling Stuckey says PNG owes 1.2 million kina for rental fees on the PNG embassy in New York, which have accumulated over six years. And that as well, they also have another $2.7 Kina to settle with the United Nations over membership fees, which have accumulated over 10 years. The Treasurer says he expects a meeting with the Department of Foreign Affairs this week, where they will work to rectify the issue um, and make the payments to, of course, settle those debts. Um, PNG is one of those eight countries who lost their voting rights at the UN last year, because they had not paid their dues. Wow. Oh. <laughs> uh, look, would well, it's hit to earthquakes and
1: volcanoes.
9: Yeah, a bit of activity was uh, happened overnight and um, during the week. Uh, a magnitude 6.2 earthquake struck the Fiji Islands below the Lao region overnight. The European Mediterranean Seismological Centre said it was at a depth of 548 kilometres and due to that depth, it poses no threat to the region. Uh, meanwhile, in Vanuatu, the Yasser volcano on the Mount Garrett on Gawa the Voy on Ambai and the Lopevi volcanoes are all at alert status too which means major unrest. Now the Vanuatu Meteorology, Meteorology and Geohazards Department are monitoring that activity but it's just really crazy to think that in the space of a week Vanuatu has had a cyclone earthquake and volcano and they're on the watch yeah, It's no, A little bit
1: hard for that little country uh, And speaking of uh, volcanoes, the Fakari, mm. Island criminal trial has concluded.
9: That's right. The case brought by WorkSafe New Zealand was the biggest in its history, with 13 parties charged over the Fakari White Island volcano eruption in December 2019, which killed 22 people, including 17 Australians. Now, the island's owner had charges against them dismissed, but a judge in an Auckland court ruled that their company, which is Fakari Management Limited, managed and controlled the volcano as a workplace, and it had failed to in its duty to minimise the rest to those who had died. Six other defendants had pleaded guilty before the trial um, and sentencing will be handed down in February.
1: Yes, that was such a hard time. Uh, but look, uh, thank you very much, Tylee, for bringing our news wrap this morning. No worries. Uh, look, still to come on the show, a film on nuclear testing in the Pacific and Pacific Games in Solomon Islands highlight the ever-growing urban transformation of the island nation. You've been tuning in to Pacific Beat.
6: Celebrate the pride of the
9: Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with
6: all the latest sporting news.
7: so emotional every time you go out there and you see
6: the the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes.
1: I have grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today.
9: Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 p.m.
1: G time on ABC Australia. You're tuning into Pacific Beat. Uh, this next story, it's a known fact that a fallout from nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands several decades ago forced many to migrate to America. But for some Americans, the nuclear migration of the Marshallese remains a blind spot in the country's history. However, a new short film, which featured at the Hawaii Film Festival last month, hopes to change that. In Exile explores America's nuclear legacy in the Pacific through the eyes of members of the Marshallese community, some of which have been in exile for 70 years. Nathan Fitch wrote and directed the film, and he joins us on the line from New York. With that, I say welcome, Nathan.
10: Thank you so much. Good uh, good afternoon from New York.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Nathan, for joining us. Gosh, what inspired you to make this film?
10: Uh, in Exile actually is part of a larger film that's still in pro- um, a work in progress. But early in the pandemic, um, folks in from the Marshall Islands in Springdale, Arkansas, um, were getting hit really hard by the pandemic. Um, basically, the Marshallese make up approximately 3% of the population of Arkansas. But early in the pandemic, um, they were around 60% of the fatalities um, because they are Largely working in the meat packing industry as essential workers. And so, you know, as the pandemic was like, you know, spreading like wildfire, uh, they were very vulnerable. They live in, you know, extended families, live together. And there's a lot of health issues um, within that community that kind of date back to the nuclear testing. And so that kind of sparked um, anxiety in my mind. Like I've worked in the Pacific, I made another feature called Island Soldier about the kind of how the U.S. has outsourced soldiers from Micronesia for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is not uh, a new area or subject to me. Um, and I'd known about the nuclear testing for a long time since I'd you know, been a Peace Corps volunteer in Micronesia. And it, like you said, it, it's kind of shocking to me how few Americans kind of know about that part of American history. So the Short in Exile kind of explores that topic. Um, from the perspective of of folks in the diaspora community living in Springdale, Arkansas, um, yeah,
1: yeah, uh, again, told through the eyes of the Marshallese diaspora there in Arkansas, why Arkansas? I mean, any
10: significance? Sure, yeah, so there's a huge population. Um, the exact number is uh, a little unclear, but between twelve and fifteen thousand Marshallese have you know migrated away from their islands and live in this landlocked you know Midwestern state. And it can be kind of remarkable. I remember I was there screening another film, and I went into a uh, a Walmart, and I felt like I had stepped through some sort of portal back into the islands because it was just, you know, full of these uh, you know colorful skirts, and and I, I heard sort of the the Marshallese dialect, and I was like, wow, I, I feel like I've stepped through the the looking glass, um, and so it's kind of a remarkable. Uh, I the way chain migration has led a lot of Marshallese to to live in Arkansas. Mm.
1: And the film really reveals, you know, many Marshallese only learn about the country's nuclear history, you know, when they're adults. I mean, why do you feel the history has been hidden from them?
10: You know, I think the the answer to that is manifold. And I think a part of that has to do with, you know, from, from what I've heard through interviews, a part of it has to do with how the Marshallese have, you know, traditionally dealt with trauma within their society and a certain sense of stoicism um seems to be a maybe a part of the answer to that according to um you know people we've talked to within the community but I think I think a larger part in the part that I'm more interested in would be kind of the US's I think there's a duality where the US, you know, the Marshallese testing was one of the most photographed events in history up until that point in history. Um, the US military took 18 tons of film, both, you know, moving image and still to document the, you know, bikini testing. And so there was obviously a lot of interest in from the government in having documentation of, of the testing. But there's also been a, a real reluctance on the part of the US government to kind of acknowledge, um, you know, what happened in the human rights issues that are, are related to the, the fallout and the way humans from the Marshallese community were exposed to nuclear fallout.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone can forget that image of that cloud plume over the island nation. And then you think about wider America. Does the average American know much about their country's nuclear testing history?
10: I would say no. And it's been kind of remarkable, um, you know, showing works in progress of in exile to, you know, different communities here in New York of like quite well-educated, you know, groups of people often working in documentary films so people who are sort of outward looking and how, how no one had any sense of this, uh, this story. I think interestingly, the exception to that would be, I would say in Arkansas, because there's so many Marshallese, there actually is a, uh, a bit of an understanding of this history in a way that I've never kind of experienced in another, you know, part of the U S. Um, but I think that's kind of a product of just the sheer density that exists there of Marshallese.
1: Uh, Nathan, the film is pretty timely. I mean, given the recent Compact Association Agreement that was renegotiated a couple of months ago, do you think the US is doing enough for the Marshallese?
10: Yeah, I mean, I think the film's timely in a couple of ways. I mean, I think uh, a film like Oppenheimer, you know, that caught, you know, the Barbie Oppenheimer uh, phenomenon of last summer um, is interesting because it's sort of that film leaves off where you know, the Marshallese story begins and doesn't make a mention of it, but it it, it did feel like a moment where Americans were kind of like think there's a moment of reckoning a little bit with the U.S.'s implications in nuclear weapon testing, right? Um, mm. however you feel about Oppenheimer and however you feel about Christopher Nolan, it definitely you know vaulted this subject into the forefront. And then yeah, the Compact of Free Association, which you know, has been negotiated, renegotiated this year. Um, And from my perspective, you know, having spent almost 20 years kind of going back and forth, you know, to the islands um, it's been remarkable how little kind of consideration and thought the U S government puts into, to these islands, kind of until these, uh, until these agreements are about to kind of disappear and the, Specter of China is is sort of like suddenly made apparent to Washington D.C., and they realize that they have to kind of pay these islands attention. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable to me how little um, long term thought the U.S. government seems to put into uh, put into the islands.
1: Mm. And you know, due to that, obviously, um, you were recently in Hawaii where the film was played in front of audiences alongside a number of other Pacifica films, which. Can you maybe explain the uh, the topics? Is there often stories that are just about social injustice? Uh, yeah, what kind of stories were told?
10: Sure. So, In the Exile was shown in a block called Finding Home, I believe, um, and it was sort of about the sort of notion of of kind of how to, you know, as 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 specific islanders as as people who voyage and, and leave home. Like, how do you? refashion a home in a, in a different country, in a different place, in a different society. Um, and it was a really interesting mixture of films. Anderson Lee, who's the creative, uh, director, I believe of HIF did a really interesting job. I I think and the other curators kind of a mixture of narrative and, uh, documentary films and, uh, yeah, really straddling a, a wide, um, swath of kind of experience from, you know, Maori, you know, folks from the Maori community to Samoan people in in Salt Lake City to the Marshallese in Arkansas. So it was a really great block of films that uh, that our film was programmed with.
1: Beautiful. And yes, I know you alluded to it already that this isn't your first film that you've made in this part of the world. I mean, where does your interest in Micronesia stem from?
10: Yeah. So, I mean, it really comes out of the, you know, the two years I spent when I was around 20, I guess I I landed in Micronesia when I was maybe 22 um, and just spending two years, you know, really kind of doing a lot of like spearfishing and, you know, sitting on beaches and my, my, my job was historic preservation. So sort of documenting the culture of these islands, which has been, you know, eroded uh, essentially by waves of colonial power, you know, the, Spanish, Germans, Japanese, and the most latest group, you know, in that in Micronesia has been the Americans, and so my job, you know, for that two years was to kind of document the, the oral histories and cultural stories that are important to the islands for their own kind of preservation, and so that kind of sowed the seed that's led to me, you know, returning over the years mm-hmm. since.
1: Well, so Nathan, how can people actually watch in exile?
10: Yeah, so you know, we're hoping to to be. Sc- we're, we're waiting to hear back from some more festivals, so it'll be on the festival circuit for, for a bit. And then it'll um, be published online. The film is supported by Pacific Islanders and Communications, and we won the um, Real South Award at our world premiere in um, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, at the Hot Springs International Documentary Film Festival. And so the film will, will go online via PBS to stream, and hopefully it will be available Uh, worldwide. It'll definitely be available in the US, um, but hopefully that extends to Australia and other uh, parts of the world.
1: Absolutely. Nathan, I do hopefully look forward to watching that, and congratulations on the award and the making of exile. but we appreciate your time this morning.
10: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
1: No worries. That, of course, is writer and director Nathan Fitch.
6: Pacific Beat.
1: The countdown is on as Solomon Islands will host the Pacific Games in a little over a fortnight with thousands of athletes and spectators to converge on East Honiara for the event's opening ceremony. But just three years ago, the area was little more than a playing field and a battleground from the Second World War. Today, the stadium stands tall as a marker of the urban transformation of the area. Alan McNeil is Solomon Islands Commission of Lands and he's here live in the studio with me in Melbourne. With that, I say good morning.
0: Good morning, Aggie.
1: Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ellen. Uh, Well, the Pacific Games, they're coming to Honiara. Would like to know, can you take us through the land development that's taken place just to host the Games?
0: Mm, Sure, Aggie. So, Uh, There's been a lot of development in the eastern side of Honiara. Uh, There's a brand new stadium and lots of other facilities that have been built all on government land and I had a small role to play in that uh, to do a land swap with the uh, football federation so that we had enough land and um, space available to build those facilities.
1: Mm. And how is it looking at the moment? How exciting are you to expect people to come through?
0: Oh, it's looking fantastic. Uh, all the facilities are finished. They've been certified. Um, I'll be going along to watch some of the events as well, of course.
1: You know, one of the interesting things, Alan, about Solomon Islands is its World War II heritage. I, I understand the stadium sits on a battleground. So how was it actually made safe?
0: Well, uh, the there is a, a program of making sure that um, there's no unexploded ordnance on the ground before any of that construction took place. So, yes, although there is that history of um, uh, Guadalcanal Island and Honiara in particular uh, as being a, a site of the World War II battles. Um, and, yes, there have been cases of unexploded ordnance being found um, and causing um, you know, deaths in some cases, too. The, uh, the area where the venues have been built has certainly been cleared beforehand.
1: Okay. And that's the thing, though. Has it become a challenge when it comes to developments in Solomon Islands due to the fact that it, w- it was based on a battleground?
0: Uh, it can do, yes. Uh, so a, a lot of developments before they take place, you have to go through an expensive uh, survey to make sure that there are no unexploded ordinances in or under the ground.
1: Uh, you know the latest population figures I just saw here stands at just above seven hundred forty thousand. Uh, is Solomon Islands currently able to like positively cater to this growing number of people? Uh,
0: it is a challenge, Aggie. Um, the The population is still growing, especially the urban population. So in Honiara and around Honiara, uh, in the parts of Guadalcanal near Honiara, uh, the urban growth. Uh, the population is growing very, very fast. Uh, so it is a constant challenge to keep up with that and make sure that we've got the services available.
1: Mm, does it put pressure on uh, you guys having to make sure that there is enough housing, there is enough infrastructure?
0: Mm, definitely. Uh, there is not enough government land uh, for, to meet the demand. So there are lots of people that want land and they come to my office all the time asking for land And uh, we can't satisfy all of those requests. So there's a lot of uh, uh, informal settlements or squatters, if you like, uh, that just go ahead and build on land around the town because uh, we can't satisfy all of their requests.
1: Mm. Uh, We will get into that, Alan. But uh, if you are just tuning in, I'm speaking to Alan McNeil, the Commissioner of Lands in Solomon Islands. He is live here in the studio in Melbourne. Now, recently... You made headlines in Solomon Islands over a story about a threatening text message from the lands minister, I mean, who is essentially your boss. I mean, what measures are in place to keep some sort of separation between a public servant and politically appointed ministers?
0: Well, Aggie, I'd, I'd prefer not to talk about that. It's uh, it's an internal matter that we're dealing with.
1: No, no worries. Uh, I do, though, want to touch on the work that you do. Like, uh, it's come up, land board. Can you explain what a land board is?
0: Mm, Sure. Uh, A land board is a a statutory body that was uh, formalized in 2014 uh, by an amendment to the Landed Titles Act. It's comprised of permanent secretaries uh, who are the heads of various government departments. It's also comprised of a representative from the Chamber of Commerce, a representative chosen by the Ministry of Women, Uh, and a few other appointed members. So in total, there's about 17 people that make up the Land Board, and their role basically is to decide on the allocation of government land.
1: Mm. I mean, yeah, how much does the Land Board guide its decision-making when allocating interest in, like you say, in registered land in the Solomon Islands? Uh,
0: Well, it's guided by its own policies. So the Land Board has a policy of what to do if... Uh, somebody wishes to apply for land in Honiara or apply for land in the provinces, apply for a what's called a renewal of their fixed-term estate. So if a old, it's basically a, a long-term lease is expiring, mm. we can renew that with a, a new fixed-term estate. Mm.
1: Commissioner, Honiara is an interesting sort of urban centre. You know, it was only developed after World War II, so it is a very young city, but It has a fixed boundary. So in that situation, how do you develop a city for the future?
0: Well, you need to consult widely with uh, especially the Guadalcanal province. Uh, There have been in the past attempts to at least talk about moving the town boundary, extending it, but that's a very uh, sensitive topic. So uh, it's better just to simply talk to the Guadalcanal province about what is happening in their province and to help them with the expanding urban pressures that uh, are going into their province.
1: And after the civil conflict though of 2000s, I know Honiara had seen a surge in squatter settlements on government land, as you uh, touched on it briefly. What's your ministry's approach in dealing with this problem?
0: The main thing we do is, rather than try to um, take a hard line on those um, informal settlements, is to try and formalise them. So, Uh, There are extensive areas where people have moved in, built their houses, formed a community of their own uh, without any government intervention. So those people are calling for land titles. They want to be able to formalize the the title to where they're living. So we come along and try and retrospectively do a subdivision around them um, to try and fit in with how they have built their communities and so we can survey the area and then we can check who owns each house and then go to the land board and ask the board, can you please approve allocations of land to these people so that they can have a chance to then um, be offered and pay for and get registered a, a proper land title?
1: Yeah. So, again, if the development of these issues around these squatters, is it better to convert those areas into proper safer housing or is it just to remove them? Yeah.
0: Uh, Not to remove them, definitely not. But uh, we do have to think, though, about natural hazards. So there have been some uh, devastating natural hazards, including the 2014 floods, uh, which affected the Coah Hill settlement in particular. People are not building back in that area that was so badly affected so as long as it's an area that doesn't have a significant threat of natural hazards, uh, we can look at formalising the land tenure in those areas.
1: Uh, as we say, we're excited for the Pacific Games, of all the infrastructure, the buildings and that. I mean, once the Games are all done and finished, how much use will these facilities continue to be?
0: Mm. Well, Aggie, I'm not involved in uh, actually what happens with those facilities, but I think there is an intention for the National Sports Council or other bodies to take over those facilities after the Games.
1: Uh, Look, Alan, we just want to say thank you very much for your time this morning. Really appreciate that you were able to come in live into the studio and just to give us a little bit of insight into uh, this matter.
0: Mm, Thank you, Aggie.
1: No, No worries. That is Alan McNeil, Solomon Islands Commissioner of Lands. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look back at our main story today. An increase in arrests involving methamphetamines is raising concerns in Samoa. Based on the current factors and the current cases, we can say that it's getting to a point that uh, it's becoming a continent. And that's Samoa's Deputy Police Commissioner Papali'i Mona Lisa te For more of our stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3 pm PNG time, but I will be back same time tomorrow at 6 am. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next, and then coming up after that, it's Jacob McGuire with and Daily. Until then, I'm Aggie Dubong, and this is Pacific Beat.